if you go through the book of John, John is different from the other synoptic gospels. Synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they, they look at it from a perspective. And John was written last. And so John doesn't always include things that Matthew included, Mark included, Luke included, because of his, his perspective, but also his reasoning of why the Holy Spirit inspired John to write. And as we look at the book of John, we're going to see some of the signs. So as we read before, even looking at, it says, as it talks about in the end, it says the beginning of signs, verse 11, the beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee. And this is the first sign that John introduces. And it's important because sometimes when we look at signs, we don't always pay attention to signs. Some of you who drive, you know, I've seen, I haven't seen you, but sometimes you're driving, you know, the suggestions that are found in the speed limits, right? But as we think about signs, let me just give you some illustrations. For example, there's a new hair salon that opened for business right across the street. And the old established um, hair cutter barber place was there. And they put a big bold sign in the new sign that said, we give $7 haircuts. Not to be outdone, you know, the old master barber put up his own sign. And it said, we fix $7 haircuts. <laughs> then the, there's a, another story another street where the shopkeeper was dismayed because he, he, there was a brand new business that opened up, to his, uh, opened up next door to his left. And it gave a huge sign and it said, best deals. And then the um, shop on his right side opened up and the competitor arrived with an even larger sign and that said, lowest prices. And he's here in the middle, what's he gonna do? And then he thinks about it and he was panicked but then he thought about it and came up with an idea. And so over his sign, he, he, he put up a, a, over his shop, he put up a sign that said, main entrance. So, you know, reading the signs, how to pay attention. Let me give you one more. So, and this will you be able to relate to. So, top 10 signs you're in for a long sermon. Okay, there's a case of bottled water beside the pulpit in a cooler. The choir lot is furnished with recliners. These are airline chairs, they're not recliners. It's just a reminder that Jesus is our pilot. But uh, you overhear the pastor telling the sound person to have a few dozen extra SD memory cards to record today's sermon. Uh, number seven is a preacher has brought a few protein bars to the pulpit. Number six, the pastor says he won't preach long, but the bulletin has breaks for intermission. Number five, the bulletins have ads from fast food restaurants and their delivery schedule coincides with the service times. Uh, number four, while the preacher normally uses a sweat towel, there's a fully stocked linen closet. Uh, let's see, number three, the chairs are installed with 4D seats that vibrate, move, have phone chargers and speakers, not to enhance the sermon, but to keep you awake. Uh, instead of taking off his watch and laying it on the pulpit, the preacher puts his iPad and iWatch on a charger. And then the minister says, you'll be out in time to watch the Super Bowl, and it's September. So just a, a few signs there. But understanding signs, and we're going to look at um, what John refers to as the signs in the book of John. So let's open up in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth it gives to us. Help us as we go through this text, both to understand it and apply it to our lives. And Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you for John, how he communicates who Jesus is. And we ask it all in Jesus' precious name, amen.
So John lists this passage as the first of many signs. And in the next few weeks, as I mentioned, we're going to go through some of these seven signs that are mentioned by John. But John defines a sign as a specific and public work of Jesus. Not always miraculous, but a symbolic because it displays the glory of God in Jesus in his true divine earthly representative. So sometimes we wonder, what is a sign? Sometimes we always say, Lord, give me a sign. And, and God doesn't always communicate that way. God communicates us through providential earthly events. We want something miraculous, like, God, if you strike down that person dead with lightning, I'll believe. Or, you know, the foxhole prayer, you know, different people. If you do this miraculous sign, then I'll believe. You know what we would normally do? We'd probably say, wow, that was cool. Do it again. Because we're wondering how it happened. That's how we are. We're naturally, uh, as we see these events occur, it, it becomes we don't believe. And the Jews were the same way. But yet, John defines a sign as a specific and public work. So it was, it was viewed in light of other individuals. And it's not always miraculous, but it was symbolic because it displays the glory of God in Jesus as his divine earthly representative. It literally says that Jesus is doing a work and it is, he is God, as we talk about. And so we'll go through, first of all, as we read through, it says, Follow along in chapter 2, verse 1. It says, On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. You know, it seems very straightforward. But first of all, what does third day mean? Oftentimes we could read this and say, is it the third day of the wedding? But it's not necessarily third day. John is just going through. And this is the third day, if we go back to John chapter 1, of when they met Nathaniel, And it refers to the chronological ordering after the interaction, if you look at one chapter, chapter 1, verse 45, it states and says, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said, Come and see. And then it goes on and refers to that section. But if you look back in verse 43, where it where they brought um, Simon's brother, it says to, excuse me, it says, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, he first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. Now when Jesus looked at him, he said, you are Simon, the son of Jonah, you shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone. Verse 43, it says, the following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee. So since the, back in earlier in one, where John talks about, John the Baptist, he says the, on this day, the first day, going through. And he is referring to really the beginning of the ministry. And so the third day from there, it's the chronological ordering. So the wedding occurs, this wedding occurs probably two days after um, Nathaniel meets Jesus. Just to give you an ordering. It's a different order that we would have. It's not like even the chapters, remember the chapters and verses weren't in the original text. So time-wise, sometimes we're confused. So that, he, he says the third day, and so then it would have been the fifth day if we keep the order of when the wedding occurred. But we know there's at a wedding, and this wedding is different from any other wedding that we are familiar with. If you have ever been to the Middle East or understand sometimes the wedding, it was a week-long event. And this was cultural, and to understand a week-long event. So imagine... 
Um, if you're married or got married, you know, it occurring a week. You'd be like, man, I'm tired of the guests and it's only a couple hours. You know, you want to go. But culturally, it was an event that was involved the whole community, families. And it was a little even prestigious in that it was a large social and community event to the Jewish culture. It wasn't just for the benefit of the bride to look nice and look at all the decorations. This was an event that was more of, think of a small town. If you've grown up in a smaller town, and imagine if everyone was invited. And then your family had been in that community for a long period of time. And so it was elaborate, it was expensive, and the whole village was invited. And the hospitality of the event affected the family's social standing in the community. It makes me think back to the small, you know, it, the Italian um, communities sometimes where they would have, you know, the big weddings and everyone was invited. It would have gone similar to that. But this is back in the first century. And so even the financial responsibility lie with the groom and his family. It wasn't with the bride didn't pay anything. That's a, a truly American cultural thing. You know, the bride has to pay everything. You know, that's real fair. Well, back then, you know, the bride gave a dowry, but the, the man and his family had to pay for everything. And usually they were older. Remember, they married, the woman was younger, teens or mid to late, early teens, and then the husband was older. But we have this wedding that takes place, and the background is Cana of Galilee. And Cana of Galilee was located at a site probably north mi nine miles north of Nazareth. I know that I should, should have put a map for you because most of us are terrible at geography. My son isn't here, so I'll make fun of him, who thought Niagara, Niagara Falls was in South America. But uh, sometimes geography, we're just not good at world geography. But in, as we think about Israel, in the northern part, uh, that is where Cana of Galilee is located at. And the setting is rural and would have been a, a smaller town. And the probable site is near a valley, and in that valley they had these underground cisterns. So it was not near rivers, and uh, it was an area, a way to retain water. We live in the desert. Do you know we have under, underground aquifers that help preserve the water? We have Tempe Town Lake. We have, you know, canals that help preserve water. And then, you know, real estate charges more for those uh, front, uh, waterfront properties. It's not really waterfront property, but we understand that. But the whole point is water wasn't, uh, they, they preserved it by keeping these underground aquifers, and so this town was near that. If you think about the settling of rural areas in the West, oftentimes you could tell where um, a house or where a small community was. Do you know how? If you're traveling across, what would be things that you look for? Well, if you're coming from a distance, you know, what, what do you see even before that? Yeah. Look for a source of water, and usually there's trees because, you know, planting that. So sometimes you would, you would find that because they settle. And even here we understand shade. But here they had where the water, they built these underground aquifers and had that, and so the community was developed. And so as we look at the text, understanding this wedding in Cana of Galilee, and it says the mother of Jesus was there. That's a basic statement, but there's more significance, first of all, because Jesus as an adult uh, she was, the mother was probably involved in this wedding. Some Jewish historians even wondered, questioned, is this the Apostle John's wedding? 
But the mother, his mother was Salome and likely the sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus. What we know here, and it is inferred and in study, is that Mary was involved in the wedding preparation planning. And she was concerned because um, if we look at it, even the guests who were involved, but Jesus was invited and his, the disciples, but Mary was there. And Jesus, as we know, would have been an adult male, you know, early 30s. And we cannot know from the text if, but she was, a, she, if she was um, there because of her sister, but we know that she was involved in the wedding and part of it. And so in verse 2 it says, a simple, another simple statement is that now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. So they had come down and they were headed that direction on the way to Galilee, but they were probably friends of the groom or bride and they knew probably the groom individual, and so they were there for a reason. It's not like, oh, they just showed up. Hey, Jesus is here. Let's invite him. But they were there for the wedding. In verse 3, it says, And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. They ran out of wine. This would have been a huge social faux pas, if you will, to run out, or a grievous error that would have had lasting effects on the groom and and even his family. Because it could have, as I was reading and studying this out, it could have even opened them up to lawsuit from the bride's family. So imagine you're having a wedding and, oh, it run out of food or run out of this. It would have been a social embarrassment. And to have that occurred. And so there was many negative effects. So when Mary says they ran out of wine, she is caring for the groom and the family. It's kind of, if you think about the term saving face, there's something that going on that could cause embarrassment. And so she wants to bring this to Jesus' attention. And the mother, Jesus says to him, they have no wine. Now you have to remember, Joseph was around. Joseph was older and the, the um, earthly father of Jesus probably had passed away. And Jesus may have been the provider of his mother. Uh, so he would have known he's as an adult. And she turns to him to solve this dilemma. And our text indicates that she communicates a problem with, to Jesus with the intent that he would fix it. If you think about it, you know, oftentimes um, the difference between men and women is that sometimes, you know, men think about trying to fix problems. That's how they think. Laughing right there. Because what happens is when a woman shares with a man and just wants him to listen, sometimes he's thinking about, how can I fix this problem? You know, maybe there's something at work. Oh, you know, these, these women are, are doing these things and, and, you know, my manager's mean. And the guy says, well, why don't you just Tell your manager to stop in doing this. And, and she doesn't really want an answer. She wants him to listen. Women, you have to tell the man to listen because he doesn't know that. Just to listen. He'll be glad he doesn't have to fix it. But the natural wiring is that, oh, you know, well, why don't you fix this, do this, and you'll be happy. Because the male thinks, that, oh, I'm, I'm helping her by trying to fix the problem. But that's not what the woman wants. But here, the, the mother of Jesus is try, has, a, has a problem, cannot fix it on her own, and tells Jesus, hey, you know, they ran out of wine and so would have looked at him to try to solve this problem. And it seems like a harmless gesture, but it actually evokes a questionable response from her earthly son. Because if we look at verse 4, and maybe you've looked at this and this doesn't really make much sense. Jesus said to her, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. It's like, what, what does that mean? You know, my hour does not ha- yet come and what does that have to do with me? To fix this. Well, 
what occurs here is in the original language, it's not a typical response of an adult son to his mother. Expression indicates, first of all, kind of a distance. There is no like, oh, you know how a, a mother to adult son, hey, you know, thank you. Would you do that for me, please? There is distance. Jesus is kind of inferring that there's a distance. Hey, wait a second. You know, this isn't my business. Um, and there's a measured rebuke in the tone. And you might wonder, why is he rebuking his mother when she asks him just to help with the wine? And this is where some of the sign, understanding what the signs are, because we could, we could interpret this as saying that he is beginning his earthly ministries and his priority is not the same as hers. You have to remember that he was baptized by John earlier and then he's beginning his earthly ministries. And so the priorities of what would take place. John had baptized him and declared him to be the, the Lamb of God who what? Takes away the sins of the world. And now there's a contrast between his past earthly responsibilities as the son, earthly son. And, you know, we understand earthly responsibilities. If you're a child or if you ever were a child, guess what? All of you were children at one time, and maybe you had to do chores. Maybe you had to re do responsibilities. Maybe your responsibility was to get good grades or to not hit your brother or sister. But you had responsibilities. And then when you come, become an adult, guess what? You, don't, you have different responsibilities, but the whole point is, is that Jesus is saying, guess what, my earthly responsibilities before, you know, to take care of the mother, and it was as a son in that culture would have been to provide for the parents. If you remember um, when Jesus says, follow me, and the one individual says, wait, I have to take care of my, my parents. I have to bury my parents. That didn't mean that, you know, the, the, his parents had just died and he needs to take care of them right there. It was, no, I need to wait until they pass away to take care of, of the inheritance and all of the responsibilities. And Jesus says, no, follow me. So what it is is the responsibility of taking care of the mother. And guess what? Jesus says, guess what? That is not my earthly responsibility anymore. I'm moving toward a different path, which is from my heavenly father. And so that contrasts because now it's present and future spiritual responsibilities as the son of God. And he's demonstrating for people who've watched him grow up, watched him live a perfect life earthly, and now all of a sudden he's going to display himself as truly God the Father. And that's hard for us to see because if you went to school, you saw kids, you know, sometimes you're surprised by what they become or, or you knew that they would be like that. But Jesus who grows up, they watch these family members, friends who, who knew Jesus, and all of a sudden he begins his earthly ministries. And he says, guess what? My responsibilities are different. And his past earthly responsibilities. And he must serve his heavenly fa father and is including language that his mother probably did not completely understand. For example, when he says, my hour has not yet come. That specifically refers to his future death on the cross and resurrection exaltation. Hold your spot and go to chapter 13, verse 1. John chapter 13, verse 1. John chapter 13, verse 1. It says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now go to chapter 17, verse 1. Chapter 17, verse 1, as 
he prays. And Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may also glorify you. He understood the time had arrived that he would die, that he would be the redeemer for his people. And so here we have this strange scenario is at the wedding, you know, the people running around doing things. And all of a sudden, the mother comes to Jesus and says, hey, they need some wine. And Jesus says, rebukes her almost and says, what have I to do with you? My hour has not come. She might have been like, we don't know, but it's like, what is that? You know, that response. But even in foreshadowing and understanding, the specifically refers to his future death on the cross, resurrection, and exaltation. And in some ways, Jesus is evangelizing his mother and teaching his disciples that his life will fulfill a greater purpose and all must receive him as personal savior. So remember, Mary's direct concern was that there should be no embarrassment. You know, that's what's the nice thing is sometimes probably the guys were, had no clue, but, you know, here what happens is Mary's direct concern is that no embarrassment should come to this groom or to their family or the wedding celebration. And Jesus, on the other hand, views this whole scene as it truly is, a time that is going to foreshadow his death and resurrection. And Jesus uses this time even as a transferal from the Old Testament. And John includes some of these details that in this modern context we don't completely understand. Let me give you an example as we understand the old traditional Judaic customs and rituals. And there's going to be the new covenant that Jesus talks about, found in my blood and even as we'll look at in communion, will be through him. Jesus may even view what he will do as symbolic to the future messianic times when there will be flowing wine, to when during the um, messianic kingdom when he is the bridegroom and is announcing an end of the old and now the beginning of something new. If you hold your spot there, we're going to go to uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17. Paul refers to this a little bit. 2 Corinthians 5.17. Maybe a familiar passage to you, but if you understand that, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And it is in relation, as we look at going back to, now let's go back to John 2 and continue on to understand that. Because it is an, an announcing an end of the old and beginning of the new. This is the first sign. So in verse 5 it says, His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. So his mother, though probably not understanding his answer, demonstrates faith in him and tells the servants to obey his commands and follow his instructions. You know, he says something, but there were oftentimes Jesus said things that the disciples didn't understand. Remember, he spoke in parables, and he says, explain that to me. So Jesus communicates this, and, and we have the benefit of looking back at the set of circumstances to understand and study it out. Sometimes we forget what people tell us, you know, two minutes ago. But Jesus states this and tells them. And so his mother says, well, whatever he, he wants, obey him. Because she, her concern is making sure that there's enough wine for the wedding. So in verse 6, it says, Now there were set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. So let's stop there for a minute. These were water pots of stone. 
And it's, we often think of those clay ones, the, you know, light red or brown. But these were of stone. They're heavy. And they would have been maybe this high, you know, large stones. And for the Jews, there was a process of purification. And what that means is, in the Old Testament, there was washing of the hands. You had to do it a certain way. If you've ever been in the hospital, maybe you didn't know, but, like, did you know there's a certain way to wash your hands in surgery? Did you know that? There's a certain way to sur- um, surgically scrub. So what happens is you have to take the hand, you take a scrub brush, you start here, and you go from dirty to clean. So you work down the way, then you switch, you know, and you want the water to run down a certain way, you rub down through, and then, and, and so you, that's, you know, if you've ever watched MASH or some of the old shows, you know, you're walking into the OR, so it drips down. They don't walk like this. All those shows you watch, ER, some of those, you know, they don't do it right, but, you know, they go through. And so you'll see that. There's a, a, a manner of cl- cleaning. It's the same way in the Old Testament. There were certain rituals of how to wash, not to touch. Um, if you think about the uncleanliness, part of it was hygienic, but it was also to understand the separation, that God is holy. So there's a picture of these, and the Jews understood that. Even in washing the dishes or washing the silverware, the rites, there, it says here that in verse, what is it, 6, sorry, the air conditioning change turn my page, but it says here, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, they understood that, and so there was water there, some set aside for that purpose, and the water was probably brought from the cisterns near there by the donkeys, and John reveals that the water was used for the purification, and it would have included, as I mentioned, those rites and rituals that they are familiar with, and that's all associated with the Old Testament, how did they come to have their sins forgiven? Remember, it was through sacrifice. The shedding, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And so even in blood, which we would find gross, they would sprinkle the blood in the tabernacle, which was a manner of cleansing, which we would think, if you scatter blood all around, it looks like a murder scene, a crime scene. You know, we don't naturally do that. But it was all a picture to understand that. And so here we have this water for cleaning and cleansing. And then the Old Testament laws and customs are being contrasted with Jesus. And then we look at Jesus mentioning this new covenant that is found in him. And the old ways have been ineffective, especially compared and contrasted with Jesus and who he is. And what can wash away our sins? If you think about the song, what can wash away our sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And to the average person who doesn't understand the Bible, understand Christianity, it's like, how can blood wash away sins? First of all, you know, if we had blood on us, it'd be like, it's a mass murderer or somebody. We would look at them as being dirty. We don't want it to touch because blood, there's germs, it's, it's filthy. So for the average person to understand what can wash away our sins, nothing but the blood, it's kind of almost grotesque. But to understand Jesus, the perfect one, he had to shed his blood in order for the true forgiveness to come, eternal life, and really understanding the sacrifice. But it wasn't just a clean sacrifice. And what I mean by clean sacrifice, it, it would be nice if, for example, if you eat meat. You know, it's, it's nice, you enjoy it, but if you had to watch the animal being killed and slaughtered in front of you, you'd be like, oh, I'm a little grossed out. But animals are killed, and that's the process that occur, and they taste good, you know. But to, under, but to understand the sacrifice that had to be done for you. And so Jesus, as he goes through, we see here what can wash away our sins. Jesus, we have this contrast with these 
gallons of water pots sitting. These 20, 30 gallons hold probably 100 to 160 gallons of water that constantly reminded the Jews that guess what? You have to keep washing, cleaning yourself. But that won't wash away your sins. Some have said, oh, there's six of them. Maybe that's, um, they would understand it as a number of, um, indicates incompleteness. And seven is perfect, but we don't know that. It just simply says that there were six water pots, and uh, we can't assign the number as significant because what is important is the emphasis on the transformation of the water. So in verse 7, we return to the text. It says, Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water, and they fill them to the brim. Basic statement, you know, get all you can, right? Fill it to the rim. So as we look at that, you know, it says, in this may indicate the plenitude of the water, that they had enough water. We don't know. But then it says, draw some out now or draw some out. In verse 8, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. Draw some out. And some have questioned, which, you know, as I was studying out the text, the question is, it doesn't indicate in the English when we read it, did they draw it out of the water pots or draw out of the source of where they got the water? doesn't really matter. The whole point is, it's just how I think sometimes as we, as we study the word of God, what does it mean? But the question as we look at it is um, where they got the water in the first place. But either way, we recognize that he turns the water into wine. So in verse 8 and 9, it says, and they took it. Then the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made of wine and did not know where it had come from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew. And the master of the feast called the bridegroom and then We'll look at that for a second. And the reason I say, did he draw out of the water pots or did he draw out of the source of water? Because it could have said, fill those water pots completely full and to understand that would have been a picture of how in the Old Testament or the purification rites or how the man of purification, there are plenty of water, but that is insufficient. And he may have said, draw the source. And we don't know, but obviously as he changes this water to wine and what we believe is it was from the water pots probably, because they would have that, turns it to wine. And he took the wine and gave it to the master of the feast. And the master of the feast, literally it means ruler of the table. And it would have been like the caterer or the person who was in charge of the feast and dinner. What's interesting, side note, is when they had feasts uh, or parties that fed a lot of people, they would actually elect someone to be in charge. And that appointed person was in charge in determining the strength of the wine. Because when we say wine, um, we don't know the strength of it. There were some times that it was other times in the Bible mentioned for people to get drunk. But the wine served was usually one-third to one-tenth of the strength of what we'd have as wine. Unless the text indicates that it was a strong drink of wine. So to understand that, and it says, it, it depended, and really it depended upon the purpose of the event. And so the one in charge would have been responsible for that. But he tastes this wine and says, Two things, and we see here, it says, verse 10, And he said to them, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. You have kept the good wine until now. Two things we see here is, first of all, the wine is of high quality for the taste of it, so he could under taste it, and then also it was of sufficient quantity. As we see here, there's enough of it. So it's a reminder of the parallel as we think about the Lord's Supper, 11, 1 Corinthians 11, 25, and 26. This is my body, and then he says, this is my blood. 
which is shed for me. Do this in remembrance of me. And do this until he comes. And not only is it a picture of the reminder that Jesus is going to return, that he shed his blood, but that blood of Jesus is sufficient for any individual that comes to him. There's no sin too great that Jesus cannot forgive that sin. There's no person too bad that, you know what, they can't come to Christ. And it's not like there's a sufficient, um, large enough group that if, if a country were to come to Christ or a large group of number come to Christ, guess what? His blood is still sufficient to provide the forgiveness of our sins. So as we look at that, there's no limitation to those who can come to Jesus in salvation. And it's still effective for even the worst of sinners. It's also a reminder to us, you know, when we do things wrong, to come back into right fellowship with him. And only Jesus can forgive our sins and give us the gift of eternal life. See, the challenge is a lot of other religious groups and organizations try to get to God through their own good works. But what is good enough? We will never be good enough. It's the balance of understanding that it is only through the person work of Jesus Christ. That's the hard part. We talked about, you know, even the submission to understand. None come to him, no, not one. There's none righteous, no, not one. But Jesus says, and here, this wine is sufficient and able to come. And guess what? What will happen is this transformation is a picture for them to understand the sufficiency. Guess what? They were looking for the wine. They were looking for the signs. But what will occur is that there's no limitations who can come. And that this wine that Jesus provides is superior in every aspect. It is more sufficient than the, than the water that was used for the purification. So in verse 11, let's just, um, in closing, look at this. The beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Verse 11 includes what in literary terms is called an inclusio. It's not some magic uh, command or charm, but an inclusio is literally a literary device that encloses a section. So if we look at verse 11, it says, the beginning of signs Jesus did where? In Cana of Galilee. And it encloses because if we look back in verse 1, it says, on the third day there was a wedding where? In Cana of Galilee. And so we don't always understand that, but this is, the, this is in the Greek context. It, it provides that to help us that it's an enclosure or an envelope. Um, and so it returns to that. And in conclusion, what we look at, what is the purpose of this sign? It says, Jesus turned the water into wine as a means to what? What's the text say? You can answer. What's that? Right, but even before that, what's that one? Manifest his glory. And see, to understand part of manifesting his glory is who is Jesus before them. Jesus only knew him as a child who grew up, the son of Mary, the illegitimate mother. But now Jesus is manifesting himself as the son of God, that he is God. And it's hard for us because when you see someone who has lived beside you and all of a sudden say, I'm the son of God, and you'd be say, yeah, right, I'm, I'm the president or I'm the you know, king because we know that person. So think about it, if I could give you a parallel, is that someone who comes to Christ, there's a transformation in their life. If they've lived a certain lifestyle, it's hard to change um, your testimony. It's hard to change your, to become credible again. 
if a person has stolen once, what does that make them? A thief, you know? And so what happens is they stole it. So if someone is a thief, they've been around you, sometimes you're like, you're always wary of them because they're a thief. If someone who you know has lied in the past to you, what are they? A liar. You know, and so to understand that credibility. So all of a sudden Jesus is trying to, is he's transforming in a public ministry. And so he does this miracle to explain. Guess what? Have you guys ever changed something into something else? We can change it color. You know, you can watch a magician say, oh, look, where did it go? You know, or sometimes, you know, you see those videos how, look, I'm pouring it a little glass into a big glass. How'd you do that? You know, those are deceiving tricks. Jesus transferred six large, large jars of water into wine. And that didn't happen every day. And to understand that and the witnesses and to look at that and as a simple sign to proclaim. And as John explains to us in verse 11, he manifested his glory. John 1.14 is this key scripture. And it says, if you go back to John chapter 1, verse 14, it says, The word of God became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his what? His glory, the glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. See, John now starts explaining to his, his readers and to us that Jesus is God. The glory of that seen in his actions. And so the result of that is that the disciples believed, saw and believed in him. Remember, John the Baptist said, there's one coming behind me who I'm not even worthy to tie the shoes. The Son of God, the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world, the Messiah. But just because someone says that's who he is doesn't mean that he is. You know, I know people who say, you know, I'm Napoleon, right? But it doesn't mean that they're Napoleon. We say the Napoleon complex. But to understand that Jesus is demonstrating who he is to the people around him. And John is trying to convince them, especially because there are, at that time, Gnostics, these others who had a different belief. And so he explains the deity of Christ is essential. And let me just close with this, where it says, go to John chapter 20, verse 31, because as we look at all the signs, this is going to be the culmination of that. John chapter 20, verse 31. I'm going to come back to this a bit, but as we look at the book of John and the signs, John chapter 20, and let me start in verse 30. John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. It says, And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that ye may believe that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Son of God. And that believing you might have life in his name. Three things there. So for us this morning, it is important for us to remember that Jesus Christ gives us both eternal life, but also it gives us a specific purpose and direction in our present day lives. You have purpose because of Jesus Christ and what he's done, and you have direction. And believing in him, you might have life in his name. Now you say, oh, well, I have biological life. I have breath, but life, understanding, is without a meaning to life. What, is, what good is life? About AI or artificial intelligence, you know, what separates um, us from machines? But to understand what it means, both to, first of all, to have the peace of knowing that 
you are made with a purpose, that there is within you a desire to have a relationship with your creator, God the Father, that he cares about you and loves you, and that there is purpose in your life. And so as we look at the signs, if you don't have a personal relationship with Christ, if you were here this morning and to say something happened to you and you weren't sure if you would go to heaven, I would encourage you to place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. The Bible says that you can know for sure that you have eternal life and it is written or ask someone to know that because it's, it means confessing our sins, admitting that you're a sinner and asking Jesus Christ to come into your life and give you the gift of eternal life. Just believe that Jesus died, that he rose again. And not any man could do that. It's not like believing in a, in a basketball player. You know, I, I believe in, in a basketball player, LeBron James, but guess what? You can believe in him, but he didn't make it to the playoffs. You can believe in a baseball player or a sports player, but they're going to let you down. But Jesus Christ, believing that he is who he said he is, that he died, that he rose again, and that he will return. And that object of our faith is worthy of our trust. And he is who he said he is. And because of that, you can have life. Not just eternal life. And it's not just like, oh, immortality, I'll live forever. But it's a quality of life with him. But it's also a life on this earth that has purpose and meaning. A peace of knowing that, guess what? God is in control. There's a lot of things in this world to be anxious about. Gas prices, wars, homelessness, um, What's going to happen tomorrow? Is the stock market? Uh, what's going to happen at my work? What's going to happen in life with my family, with my friends? And those anxieties can overwhelm us. But when we understand that God is in control, but also there's a purpose to help me change, to help me become more like Christ, to understand I can only control my response. And sometimes I, don't even, I can't even do that because of the anxiety and our sinful nature. But through the help of the Holy Spirit, we can live and honor and glorify Christ through our lives. And that means that each of you have a purpose and the ability to, if you will, shine a light. And someone can say, there's a difference in that person. Or even when we sin and mess up, there is a purpose in that. Maybe it's to help us come back to Christ or to show that this is the proper response of what to do in that situation. And so Jesus Christ gives us both eternal life and a purpose to live. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, thank you. As we look at this first sign, it may seem like a simple transferring water to wine. But it is a miracle. But it's also, it was given for the servants, for these ones who he had called just previously. As we look at Simon Peter, James, Andrew, John, to help them to understand who he was. He wasn't just simply one who said, you know, is this the Messiah? Even Nathaniel said, can any good come out of Nazareth? But yet Jesus, this individual who many saw as a human, as one who had grown up in this area, was now presenting himself as God, incarnate. Father, help us to as we live our lives, help us to understand that you have a plan and purpose for our lives and that we can live for you. And Lord, I pray that you would, you would teach us, guide us, help us to be faithful in reading your word, but help us to, to understand that the Bible is not simply just something that we, we memorize or we read, 
but it's something that changes our lives. It transforms our lives. Not to just inform us for information, but for transformation. And Lord, we are grateful because we have the Word of God and we can read back and look at what has occurred in the past, what you have done. So I pray for each one here this morning. Help them to overcome sin. Help them to live for you. Help them to understand that you have a, a specific plan and purpose and you care about them. You want us to, to trust you. You want us to depend upon you. You want us to pray to you. And God, I'm, I thank you that you don't always give us what we want. Because if we always got what we want, we would become spoiled believers. We would, we would not go through anything difficult. But Lord, you allow difficulty and challenges to go through our life to transform us, to change us. And it's not some sadistic game that you play, but it's to teach us. Because honestly, while we know our, our strengths and weaknesses, you know us better, intimately better than any other individually. And you give us the opportunity to be transformed and to live like Christ to our family, to our friends, to make right choices when on our own we would never choose to, but through the power of the Holy Spirit, you allow us to supernaturally decide to turn from sin when there's no way we could do it, to help us to live in a way that pleases you when, when naturally we don't want to. So God, help us to encourage one another and pray for one another. Thank you for this first sign. And as we go through the book of John, help us to, to see the glory of God in our, in our lives, that you, you choose to display the glory through the book of John and even in our lives. And we are thankful for that. And we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.